going to have to come to an agreement with my daughter. I actually asked her permission because I've been, like, she's just such good fodder for good story material. So we started back to school this week. Some of you started back to school this week. God bless. Go with God. If you're an educator or a student, Jesus still loves you. So we, we always deal with some back-to-school anxiety, you know, which is funny because, you know, my daughter's been now attending the same school for about five-plus years. So she knows where everything is, and now she's, like, at the upper echelon of, you know, elementary school pecking order, you know. So, like, we're dropping off the, you know, her on the first day of school, and there's these little tiny kindergartners just running around. So she should know better. So, but she got excited. We got her hyped up for the first day of school. And we actually, you know, we we're just like, do you want to take the bus? you want us to take? No, go. First day, we go. So it's like this family experience, which works out well for us because we get to see people we know and connect with some parents. But so we take her to the classroom. She's so excited. And then she hits the door and she's just like, bye. And it kind of, you know, from dropping this little sheepish kindergartner off years ago to now to the point like, see ya. You know, you're kind of like, what happened here? Well, you know, we get the play back after the first day of school, like how are things going? She's just like, oh, it was awesome. Like teachers are great, new schedule because they switch classes is all great. But she's basically, and name change to protect the innocent, she, she says, Benji's in my class. And I'm like, Benji, and mom's like, oh. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Do we all have like a secret language? Like, who is Benji? And she's like, Benji's Kalen's nemesis. <laughs> Which, number one, is good to know that my daughter has now reached the point in life where she can have a nemesis. And there were like two other nemeses, I think is the plural of nemesis, in the class. And then the next day, she actually, they arranged the tables where she's at the same work table. And it's just her and Benji. She's like, and I don't even understand because there's like plenty of other tables in space. But she put, you know, there's like five or six at every table. And then it's me and Benji at this table. And apparently this started like in kindergarten or something like that. So this one was recent. So, you know, I'm trying to, so you see, I can't even keep track of all of her nemeses. Oh, it might be it is that she didn't like her his soccer club, which means Benji's an idiot, but that's a whole other sermon. It's interesting to work through that with a 10-year-old, but I wonder if you and I, though we be older, have our own nemeses. And somebody is just like, hell yeah. You're like, you're already marking it down. You know who that is. I'm getting some affirmative nods and we won't have you share right now. Because we do record these things. But it's interesting because, you know, we spend a lot of time going through, uh, as we go through the Bible, that's what we do here as a church. And, I, you know, I try to keep things positive. And th- this is what's interesting about teaching through the Old Testament, as we are prone to do around here. So there's just some stuff you just have to grapple with it. And what I want us to look at this week is at one of Israel's enemies. And I would offer that it was one of their greatest enemies in all of the Old Testament. But before we hop into this aspect of our study, because we're in the books of First and Second Kings, and we'll get here in a little bit, but we actually have to rewind and start very much earlier than this to see how the nemesis of Israel develops. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to put the words up for the first um, for the first texts up here, we go to the book of Genesis, and Genesis is a foundational book for many different things, but basically, um, and this is why, by the way, some scholars are like, all of Genesis is made up because it's a set of stories to prove 
why God's people do and say what they are. And I would say that we don't have to go to that extent. So, you know, and there's different levels of biblical. We believe the scriptures are true and enriching and verifiable. If all of these events happened, which I do believe in, by the way, we could do a whole other sermon. But even if you don't believe that, it allows you to see what is tracking to get us to this point. So I, I just offer that because, you know, I sometimes talk with people who, you know, they're just like, well, if Noah doesn't exist, everything falls apart. And um, it, it doesn't. Although for us to say like that Noah never existed is kind of hilarious because it's just like, you know, okay, I also believe in a God who came to earth, lived perfectly, died from the dead and rose from the grave. You know, like, why is this so much far of a stretch? So that was actually... This is deeper textual criticism stuff that I want to hop right in here, which is what we all showed up for this morning. This will be a doozy. Let's just start at Noah, and let's see how we get to enemies, okay? Noah was a man of the soil. And by the way, this is post-flood, Williamstown Ark, all this stuff, right? So this is later. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. The first thing he did when he got off the ark was like, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to plant a vineyard. And this is what's great. Why did he plant a vineyard? Uh, When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered it inside of his tent. So there's this idea that the first reaction that Noah had after getting off the ark is like, I got to get drunk. But it it, it was a lot less time than just going down to the liquor store. It was like, but I've got to be deliberate. So now I have to plant a vineyard and then harvest the grapes and then make sure to crush them into liquid and allow that to ferment so I can get drunk. So this is like the most intentional drunk history thing you've ever seen, right? Like it works its way into it. You think that's a weird story. It gets way weirder. Welcome to church. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. And then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed to be Canaan, the lowest of the slaves will be to his brothers. And you're like, what is going on here? Welcome to the Bible. The thing about this is, remember what this came after was the ark. And the point of the ark, and the ark motif weaves itself through in the New Testament, is the ark was a vehicle of salvation. Because only the people in the ark actually survived the flood. Everyone else died. And what was the nature of the ark? It was a flooding. It was water. And we see this motif throughout the scriptures too. That by passing through water, you are saved. So the ark is this beginning metaphor motif throughout the rest of the Bible of salvation. Okay? So after the ark, Noah is grappling with it. And by the way, I, you know, if you think about this, the flooding. And, and I will tell you, if you have not seen it, the Noah Ark Russell Crowe movie. I thought was a good movie, even though they, like... There was these weird angel rock creatures that helped him build the boat, which was really out there. So I'm not saying like I affirmed that. But the struggle that they displayed within Noah's life was true, which is how do you react when like you survived an event where everybody else in the world died? It might lead you to drinking, okay? But here's the thing too, is that Ham, the youngest son of the three sons that were saved... decided like when he saw his father drunk passed out he was just like look at the idiot you know and he's just like he's naked you know it was like this big running joke and you might say like hey no you shouldn't have been naked and drunk in the first place but the point was is that ham wanted to mock his father who actually if it hadn't been his father ham wouldn't even be alive on multiple levels right from coming into this world but more importantly from surviving the flood and what noah's saying is just that you are showing no respect Not even for, you know, you you might be like regular parents 
Like, you're not respecting me. The bigger problem was Ham wasn't respecting the God who used Noah to save him. Are you tracking through that? That's the weird part of this story. So when it comes through is that basically Noah's just like, hey, you and your whole family are going to be cursed because of this. And this story doesn't stand alone because we see it weaving through the book of Genesis. We'll go through, oh, there's a picture for... I was like, no, I, I chose the blue box, so... If you want to see an RF rendition of a naked Noah, there's a few. By the way, and I did discover this wrong in my naivety when I was doing a slide. Do not, like, image search naked Noah, which is what I did. And then I was just like, that was, like, it sounds like when you're doing it, I'm like, oh, I'll find an image. You're like, don't. It's like, just not, it's not anything that you want to see. Like, Man. You think I would know better. I worked in IT for a while. Genesis chapter 10. So it moves forward is that Cush is a descendant of Ham. Okay, the bad son. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior. And by the way, you're like, oh, Nimrod, it's a biblical term. So use it freely. Was a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that's why it said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Um, And then it talks about the the cities that the defense of Cush and Nimrod began to found. And one of those was an area, the land of Assyria. And if you know anything about the Bible, I have a green laser pointer. You might recognize this town called Nineveh because that's where Jonah of whale fame was supposed to go tell people about God. And Jonah said, I'm not going there because it was one of the major cities in Assyria. So the thing about this is all this traces back to Nimrod, which I just want to say the word Nimrod as much as I can in a sermon, because if you got it, roll with it. But here's the thing about Nimrod is that what he was known for was one being part of this descendant who was always, who was part of the curse of God. But the second thing that he was known for militaristic prowess, he was a fighter. He was a violent man. And that is one of the the hallmarks of what we are going to see with Assyria and the lineage of the people. Whereas God is trying to eventually lead to a world where peace reigns, it is the Assyrians who want to be involved in conflict. One other thing, just to jump through this, because this is the filler after drunkenness and Noah's, all the family grows up. Here's the story that you might be familiar with. is a story of the Tower of Babel. So they get off the ark. They're like, okay, families, boom. And then they're just like, hey, let's all have a building project together. And this is what's interesting from Genesis chapter 11. Because it says the whole world had one language, one common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. When off the ark, Noah and his descendants were told, just go spread out over the world. Like, you know, just be everywhere. And they were like, no, let's just all stay together. And the reason for us staying together wasn't just because we all like each other. It was for the purposes of power. And they said, let's create a society where we are greater than God. And if you know the end of the story, God says, nope, it's not going to happen. He messes up all their language. So their building project goes awry. They can't understand each other. And then all the people spread out. And this is the way that the scriptures explain how we got everybody around the world, all different nations. Okay. But here's the interesting thing about this is that the very beginning of the the, of the process, we see that they moved eastward. And for you and I, that might not mean much, but within the Old Testament, there's this signification that whenever people go east, they are moving away from God. 
Later, there'll be a patriarch named Abraham in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15. And he is called to follow God from the east to the west. And part of that is supposed to be the signification that he is going where God wants him to go. And whenever you see in the Old Testament that people are moving east, this is supposed to be symbolic of them moving away from God. And again, what's interesting is the place where they settled in the plain of Shinar was basically the, the, the centers of two different nations. One that would later become Babylon. So the Tower of Babel, Babylon, you see that. But the other was a group of people called the Assyrians. And depending where you're at, if you're a good student of world history, or maybe you're not, or maybe you've never heard of the Assyrians, but the Assyrians are major players in the Old Testament. They are nemesis of Israel, right? So as we now get to our study, and that's their tower, actual picture. As we get to our study of First and Second Kings, as we have been talking this year, what we have to now do is introduce the enemies to the kingdom. And the enemies to the kingdom were the Assyrians. So... Um, and just last refresher, because at some point when we were talking in 915 BC, there was one big nation of Israel. They had some infighting. They split. And in the south, in this greenish little area right here, is Judah, which was the mix of two tribes. Its capital was Jerusalem. So we're, we're going to really the rest of our study of First Second Kings, which we're going to do a few more weeks, is going to have to deal with these people. We haven't even touched them for a while since Solomon. Everything we've been looking at, the crazies up here in the northern kingdom of the nation of Israel. And that is the focus of what happens to them and what the Assyrians do to them. Zane's going to do some reading for us. I told you it's light reading today, and we're going to skip through. So we're going to start in 2 Kings 15. If you have a blue Bible, there's a page number, which is 272. Somebody came in from the back. Good try. You missed it. I heard it from first. Okay, so we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And again... This is what, seriously, I could teach you this stuff for a year and drink it for breakfast, right? But we're trying to do the abridged version. So we're going to do basically three different chapters in one week. Buckle up, but it'll be an enjoyable ride. Zane, will you read verse 29 of 2 Kings 15, please? In the time of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pilezar, king of Assyria, came to came and took... Ejon. Ejon. Abel, uh, Beth, uh, Mark, uh, Sure. You want to go to seminary. This is why I had you read this. This is the worst. Yeah, it is, but, <laughs> but, but, okay, just keep rolling. Jonah, Kadesh, uh, and Hazar. <laughs> sure. He took Gilead and Galilee, including uh, all uh, the land of uh, Naphtali, and deported uh, the people of Assyria. Okay, so... That was a lot of names. This is why people don't teach the Old Testament. You're like, that was a good reading of names there. That was great. This is what we're going to get to. It's all about the conquest of the Assyrians. Now, to help maybe you and I understand where this comes through, which is interesting, is the site of Assyria is basically modern-day Iraq. Okay? And so it's very interesting that we, as maybe Judeo-Christian Americans right, who have maybe have this idea that Iraq is the enemy, or maybe some of you are like, that's not even on your radar. Like, I, I'm 40 years old growing up. Joe was, you know, didn't you, you even looked about maybe going to the Persian Gulf when, because <laughs> you were enlisted, you know what I mean? Like, during the conflict. So for us, it was like Iraq, that's the, you know, Saddam Hussein, this is like evil. For some of you are like, I don't, they're a free country. It's this history, right? 
Well, understand within the history of the scriptures, the people, the inhabitants of this land were viewed as the enemies of God. And you know what? This could be a whole thesis statement because I bet there's some influence on that in the way that we view the people over there. So any psychology students or majors, somebody do that study for us. It'll be great. The baggage that we have of Iraq and the Bible. I don't know. Nobody's impressed. This is Assyria. Now, what's funny is you might be like, what's the capital? It's very difficult to say because there were three major cities right there, okay? And by the way, Tigris-Euphrates River we see there, if you're familiar with the Bible, understand that that is basically somewhere there in the Garden of Eden. And one of the weird things that happened during the whole, you know, uh, you know, even ISIS, their influence is like they've tried to destroy all these sacred places because they're like, oh, we know where the Garden of Eden is. And we just have no idea. But still, it was somewhere within these lands. Three cities of importance. We have Nimrud, which was a large city, 16 square miles. I just want you to think about that. That's a massive, massive city. Like, you know, from here to downtown Cincinnati, from this point, is like 2.5 miles. So stretch that out. In an ancient city, you know, and it, they wouldn't, it's not like, oh, they were just living in the suburbs of Nimrud. Like, it didn't exist. So it was a huge city with great density. Asher was a religious center of the empire named after their god uh, of the time and then nineveh becomes the architectural gem of the empire okay so and, and by the way just to let you know this area within here bringing this back is where in the 1980s iran and iraq actually waged a war so just historically this was a place of conflict we're introduced to this guy tiglath pileser the third okay i think i have a artist rendered oh this is actually a, I don't know if you can see it well. This is a relief of him. So there are actual carvings that exist of this guy who lived about 3,000, just shy of 3,000 years before Jesus, 754 to 727 BC. I know you wanted the years. That's why I gave them to you. This is what he did, though. These cities right here were all, well, look. Yeah, there we go. These cities right here were all individual like city-states. They didn't have a lot together. What Tiglath Pileser said is like, hey, we all are the same nationality. Let's join forces and see what we can do. And what they were able to do really well was wage war. So he got everybody together to the extent that he had a conflict with uh, Menahem, which was one of the kings of Israel. And basically, he, the first thing Tiglath Pileser does is he, they're like, let's go pick on Israel. Right? And basically, he was able to accept a payoff because of their military might. So, how did he develop this empire that was so great? Great, because this is what's interesting about this land. And you, we don't consider this anymore about like how ancient empires form. And just let me geek out for you for just a minute. Within their land, there was no natural um, resources they could use, okay? No iron. There, you know, if you've seen pictures of Iraq, it's very sandy. No stone available. Very little wood. It's tough to build an army, an army when you don't have those resources. And they also had no grass for horses to graze. So when they started as an army, they had to do it all through power. And here was the things too. Because of all of this space, they needed lots of slaves. And that's one of the reasons why they fought but this is what's interesting about it and again colors i don't know if you can tell but this was the original you know extent to the assyrian empire about 800 years before jesus was born this is how far they expanded it at its height so a bunch of basically hicks from iraq which i don't know if that phrase has ever been uttered but seriously were able to figure out militaristically how to take over most of the known world at the time in one way, it's impressive. 
But the more way that the more that you look at it, it's not necessarily as impressive as just figuring out how they did that. Let's do a favor, Zane. We're going to flip over a couple chapters to 2 Kings chapter 17. Read verses 3 through 5. A fewer, fewer names here so that'll work out for us. No, it's red. The battery's dead. Good for you. Hey, read out loud. Just read really loud, Zane. I believe in you. Verses 3 to 5. So we introduce this next dude, Shalmaneser, no relief, just a cool, cool painting of a relief, okay? He follows them up, and, you're, you know, Israel's hoping, hey, maybe the new boss of Assyria will be cooler with us. He was not cooler. And actually, he just said, why are we just taking money from these people? Let's just conquer them because we need slaves, right? So that is what they did. It became brutal. And you'll see this point at the end of that verse where it says they lead siege to Samaria. This was the beginning of the end of the people of Israel, the Assyrians under Shalmaneser was going to conquer them. So again, how did this army become so proficient and powerful? So through two things, technology and force. First, within technology, they used what they had. They didn't have natural resources. One thing is that they mastered the bow and arrow. There's actually a long bow that they used that increased its range, that it was so massive it took two soldiers to be able to operate and function. Um, they also became very good. And what these things right here are is these are siege ramps. And they figured out how to best attack walled cities because that's why you lived in a city is because it meant protection. It had walls. They figured out how to go against cities and take it over. One of the things, too, that because they, uh, remember, didn't have lots of natural resources, they were one of the first, mechani- uh, first organized cavalries anywhere. So everybody used chariots because from a chariot position, you could ride in the back and you could have a driver and somebody to shoot. They said, no, we can figure out how to make horsemen into warriors themselves and take advantage of the height and through their cavalry and you can see this is an assyrian relief and you can see one of the things they do is that they're trampling over this person as they've figured out how to you know basically you know murder and maim let me tell the other thing and this is again a little pg-13 rated for this but it's the most important thing that you and i can understand because we read through the bible and we say you know well you know how why did God, you know, uh, uh, why, why were the Israelites so brutal? Like, they would kill people and stuff. Friends, the, even within any of the wars that happened in the Old Testament, they were novices compared to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the most brutal army to ever walk this earth. And I want you to th- even think of that within light of 20th century armies. Okay? Some examples for fun, but I think it's interesting, is that not only when they defeated people would they defeat them, they um, made sure to torture them very well. Flaying, cutting their skin off, beheading, without explanation. 
impaling, which is what they were really good at, which in this relief we showed earlier, I don't know if you can see this, but what this was is impaling is that when they would take somebody, when they were just mostly dead, they would shove them down on sticks and then leave them out on the roads that they traveled to show. This is what happens when you go to war against Assyria. We, you know, it's like, what is it? Like pre, pre-medieval trash talk, right? Like, look at the bodies hitting the floor, like, that's what we will do to you. Also, they did all these things. They burned people alive. They severed body parts. They gouged out eyes so that they left a trail of destruction. Why, what was the effectiveness of this? Well, number one, they killed lots of people. But number two, when you started to hear the stories of this and you know how stories get exaggerated, think about that in a, you know, a verbal storytelling society. The big thing is, is that nobody wanted to mess with the Assyrians. These are ancient, we have these ancient recollections. This, this writing here is 2,700 years old. And one of the kings, we, he's actually in the Bible, by the way, Sennacherib, we're not going to talk about him today, said, at the command of Asher, we talked about the city of Asher, the great Lord, I rushed to my enemy, I put them to rout, turned them back, I transfixed the troops of the enemy with javelins and arrows, and uh, the commander of the army of Elam, together with his nobles, I cut their throats like sheep. My prancing steeds, his cavalry, his horses, trained to harness, plunged into their welling blood as into a river. So basically what he's saying is like, we killed so many people, we made rivers of blood. This is great church. By the way, if you're visiting today, welcome. This is what we do all the time. Unfortunately, the word entrails do not appear within this. Um, Okay, you get the idea. And I like that I filled the plain with the corpses of their warriors, like basically plants, right? Like that is some... Trash talk from the grave that we're doing. Just another one from Asher Banipal. I can't pronounce that one. But basically, he talks about, you know, how he built a pillar. And then he covered the pillar with the skins of his enemies. Right? I impaled upon the altar, pillar at stakes. And others I bound to stakes around the pillar. So it's like, here's their skin and their bodies. My wife is loving this, by the way. You haven't eaten yet? Why do I? And I'm seriously not just doing this for effect. But this is something that you need to understand. These are the people who came after God's people. These are not the people you want to be in conflict with. So there's the fortunate aspect is that Shalmaneser dies. The unfortunate aspect, though, is that there's always another one, right? Out loud for me, Zane, verses 10 and 11 of chapter 18. I swear this is going someplace. So Samaria was captured and Hezekiah is in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Shaiah King of Israel. The king of Syria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Palah and Gozan on the Harbor River and in towns on the east. That's great. Okay. So the last king that comes through is Sargon II. This is actually a relief of Sargon. By the way, you're like, what is this all about? One of the things that I really believe is, this is why we have to study these things, is that these people were real, actual human beings. You might be like, oh, they just made up stories and threw them in this book. The accuracy of this is crazy for ancient documents. And that's why we believe this to be part of the, you know, I really believe God worked through this because we have this accuracy. And plus, if you're going to recollect the stories, you recollect those good stories, right? Like everything was awesome. And then we, Sargon won the battle, but we ended up winning the war. And no, they, it was just, this is it. So we came in and not only did he kill Israelites, 
but also they were deported. And this is a sketch of an ancient relief. And I'm, you know, again, PG-13 right here. But even in this relief, which is that they are naked and they were enslaved and they were bound in many different ways. And this is, you know, I, because I've gone this far, I might as well just go all the way in, right? Like we know through ancient documents that one of the things is that they actually bound the men through their male parts and led them back to Assyrius, which was 100 miles of walking. So I dropped that in there on a Sunday morning too. If I'm like, if I'm going there, no, if I'm going there, I'm going all the way, man. I'm not even going halfway. I'm going to push it to the limit. That's the limit. And this is why they're called the lost tribes of Israel. Because as a result, all these people in the north were conquered. And by the way, there's a great story of how the people in the south, because then they came after them. And it was through prayer and stuff that the Assyrians were just like, you know, like they woke up in the morning and a lot of Assyrians were dead. And then the Assyrians stopped fighting. And we actually know the fall of the Assyrian kingdom followed their attempts to fight Judah. And then they disappeared for the Babylonians. But we know that many of those people were drugged from Israel back to Assyria. And the other ones intermarried with the Assyrians who are ruling over the the territory. So basically, this is what's interesting, as I'm telling you, is that we're reading the Bible and God's people lost. And it wasn't just because God said, you know, know, like, I'm ineffective today. What he warned them, and if you've been following with us through First and Second Kings through all this time, he said, listen, you guys are going away from me. I can protect you. Stay with me. And they just kept saying, no, we're going to be okay. They worshiped different gods. They did all these different things. They intermarried with other people to the extent that finally God said it's over. 721 BC, we know the year that all of this happened and they were gone. That's why they're called the lost tribes of Israel. Okay. Am I, I just... I should really stop now because this would be a great sermon. Everybody would be like, what happened this morning? This is what's interesting about stories, though. Because the Assyrians are excellent nemeses, right? Like, I'm, I could give you biblical permission to hate them. Like, anybody that's brutal. That, like, I'm telling you, they made, like, the Nazis look like amateurs, right? So it's like, I can hate them. Like, it's my God-given right. This is what's interesting, though. So this happened 721 BC. There's some intermarrying with the people within this area of Israel. And over generations, a new people group grow from them. And they're known for the location of the capital, which was conquered by the Assyrians. But they're known popularly to us because of their presence in the New Testament. They're called the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the descendants of the Assyrians who intermarried with the people of God. And by the way, when you read the New Testament, because maybe you recognize the Samaritans, and some of us, you might only know the Samaritans from the Good Samaritan Hospital, right? Like, okay, they they were good. That's why they were Samaritans. No, the idea that it's the Good Samaritan is because that was supposed to be the outlier, because the people of God hated the Samaritans so much, they couldn't perceive that a Samaritan could actually be good. And that's the point of that story that Jesus told. The loving person was the person that you hate, And interestingly enough, if you know the New Testament or not, Jesus, when he goes through his ministry, aha, map for effect. This is the area. Look, I'm even going to point to this. This was the area of Galilee, right? Galilee is where Jesus hung out with his troop. They had a good time. Well, they wanted to get to Jerusalem. So that's a pretty far distance, right? So if I'm going from this area, Galilee, to get down to Jerusalem, I'm going to probably want to follow that green line or dot, Because that's the direct point. Do you know how much they hated Samaritans? 
they would come down here, cross the Jordan River, come all the way down here, which is cliff, dangerous area, and then cross back over just so that they wouldn't have to come across the descendants of the Assyrians. That's how much they hated them. So some random day, Jesus wakes up to his Boy Scout troop of disciples and says, hey guys, let's go for a trip. They're like, oh, great, Jesus, we love going places with you. Where are we going? He's like, to Samaria. And they're like, what the hell? Somebody shake the Savior. He's doing it wrong. He's defying convention. So when he's at a well in Samaria, and they're like, he's like, man, all these Samaritans are going to come up. And, he, and when he goes, gives them an assignment, they're like, we'll do that, Jesus. And they go away. And this lady comes up. And he just starts talking to the lady. He's like, hey, lady, can I get a drink of water? You have a thing. And she's like, why are you even talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. It has not worked out well for, 27, or for 700 years. Right? Like, this should not work out. And Jesus is just like, whoa, 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 let's chill. Have a good conversation. And every part of the conversation, she thinks Jesus is trying to mess with her and trap her. And ultimately, Jesus says, look, I've just come here because I love you. And I believe that the Lord is going to do great things here. You've got to read the story in John chapter 4, but this is what I'm taking us to the end of it, which I think is great. Because after Jesus finishes talking to this lady, this lady's like, you got to meet this Jew. This, is, this guy is, is different than any other person I've ever met. And they're like, but he's a Jew. She's like, I know, right? Come with me anyways. And they come out and he talks to him. And this is what happens as a result. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him, hey, stay. And he stayed. So not only are the Boy Scout troop pissed because they have to go to Samaria. He's like, hey, guys, we're going to settle down for a few days. And they're just like, we should become Satanists. This is a horrible religion. They, they, he's ruining everything. So when you think, hey, why these guys stick through with Jesus? Because he took them to a place where they were like, there's Jewish laws that we have on the books from their day that stated this is how great you are able to hate on Samaritans. On Samaritans. Like their religion said you can hate those people. And Jesus is like, no, we're going to hang out. We're going to, let's, you know, let's start a bonfire. I've got a cooler. It's going to be a great time. And because of Jesus' words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. And this is the key. This is awesome. We believe that this man is really the savior of the world. Do you know what Jesus was doing through this little thing? He was rewriting like 800 years of hatred. To where the enemy became friends. That's a concept that I think we can jive with, right? Where the enemies become friends. That's a beautiful concept, right? Like, make a movie about it. But I do not want to live that out in my daily life. This is like my second Star Wars reference in six weeks, and I really don't even watch Star or Star Wars. And then, really, I'm talking about Star Trek, and I said Star Wars, so that just shows you how off I am. I do know the difference, by the way, okay? But I was watching this documentary about, you know, the, the creation of the Star Trek universe, and it was funny because there was a point where um, I think it was Leonard Nimoy was influencing the next generation. You know, he was talking about Star Trek, the next generation. And they were like, listen, the Klingons need to be friends now. And people were like, no, 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 no. That's not Star Trek. The Klingons are the bad people. They're the enemies. And that's what happened. And it was Leonard Nimoy, like I'm 90% sure I should have written it down, basically said, no, like, because you can't just stay enemies with somebody 
forever. So it's the weirdest thing when you're a Star Trekky, you're like, oh, the Klingons, they become cool, right? Like they're just enemies. No, like the whole thing was based upon their enemies. And at some point there was a reinterpretation where it's like, no, the enemies become friends. Basically, the person to do that with the Bible was Jesus. So if it helps, that's why I said all that horrible, horrible, horrible stuff that we had to listen to for 15 minutes, because you can't appreciate what happens here in John 4 unless you understand how evil those people were. And I think that's the message that needs to resonate resonate with you and I. How do we deal with our nemeses? When I was in junior high, and this is why Kaylin with a little Benji, this is why I remember that. There was a guy named Skippy, and his name I did not change to protect the innocent. So if Skippy is listening to this, he still needs Jesus. I'd get off the school bus, the dude would just start hitting me. All right? Like, to the point where you're just like, okay, he'd punch me. So, you know, what do I do? I fight back, but I was like 80 pounds soaking wet. Never went well for me. And then, actually, in high school, it was funny. I was stopping at the, you know, at the Quick Mark, and Skippy was there with his associate. He's like, look at this guy buying the hard liquor. And I'm like, okay, like, we're in high school, and you're, I'm buying a Mountain Dew. And you're like, still? It's like, you're still? And thinking this week, I thought about Skippy, because I could pass Skippy on the street today, and I had no idea who that dude was, right? As much as I want to paint Skippy as this horrible, evil person that will die alone. No, I, I, I just, I really don't want that, right? Because what does Skippy mean to me? Which again, that's the best statement ever uttered to. His name was Skippy. I'm not even making that up. Which made him an ineffective bully. If he had a better name, it would have worked out. What does Skippy mean to me today? You know, really for Skippy, I hope that guy was able to righten up his life. I I hope he has a family. I hope that they love the Lord and they figured out how to grow that. That's really what I hope. And here's, but here's the thing. It's much more convenient for us to keep enemies than to see them become our friends. And I really think what God is calling us to do today is to see things different. And that enemy in your life, can you make him your friend? And that, unfortunately, that's something that I need to do myself still, right? Like, Skippy's just an example. In the past few years, in the past six months, there's about four people who I have just, like, our, our relationship has just, exist, has just ceased to exist, and I, I just loathe them right now. And I need to work on that internally. This is what I'm asking you. Who are those people in your life? Who are those enemies? And what are you doing to fix that? And again, I, I just want to take this a little further because I could stop here and you'll be like, okay, that was it. But he's kind of preaching, you know, like, okay, there's a cute story about horrible Syrians. Now they're friendly and we need to do that. That's fine. I think we need to understand this deep, deeper on a spiritual level, not even just a pragmatic level. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 verse 10 wrote, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now, again, that's a little Bible-ish, right? So it's hard to track here. Can I break this one thing down for me? Because this is one thing. For if when we were God's enemies, the we there is a letter being written to the church in Rome. So it's written to the church. So that needs to apply to you and I. And what the Bible is saying, by the way, is then that you are God's enemy. You are God's enemy. You are the Assyrians. You're like, hey, all I've ever done is fillet a fish, not actually fillet a person, right? But here's the thing. Theologically, 
when you and I have done wrong, we have done just the same amount of sinning as anyone else. And you're like, no, 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 no. Never killed anybody. It doesn't work out. Listen, in the sight of a perfect holy God, our imperfections are egregious in his sight. Right? When we sin. Who was I talking to this? Was somebody this week talking about a million sins or one sin? Do we have that conversation? Larry, say your line. Say your line, Larry. Come on. I'm calling on you. Okay, so the di- in eternity, the difference between one sin and a million sins is nothing. The difference between zero and one is infinite. And Larry said this week, and I've been chewing on that because it was like a piece of profundity, although I didn't remember you said it, I'm sorry. Yeah, you probably stole it, which is all the best stuff. Here's the point, though. One sin violates us against God because he's perfectly holy. He has no room for any imperfections in holiness. So you might be like, I have not beheaded anybody in the last couple weeks. It doesn't matter, friends. Our sin is what separates us from God. And that's the point of Jesus. That's the point of Jesus. Because what Jesus did through his perfect life and death, he lived it perfectly so that we don't have to. So if we affix ourselves to him, if we, if, we, if we are tied with Jesus, then we are no longer God's enemy. And that's what Paul is writing throughout all of Romans. But that's something that you and I need to understand. Because when I say enemies, you think of somebody else. But you need to think of the mirror and look into your eyes and recognize that you are an enemy of God. But that's why Jesus is so important, right? That's why we come here and worship and praise God for Jesus. Because he, when we were enemies, made us friends with God. So as you are struggling dealing with those other people, see yourself the way that God sees you. You're his enemy. But man, he loves. He loves you. He loves you despite what you do. And how, how can I then not just try to live that out? So this week, find your nemesis. And hug them. No. You know what you need to do? If you can't get it done this week, you've got to do your baby steps. Maybe for you, the most transformative thing. And by the way, this gets tough, doesn't it? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a family member who did you wrong. Maybe somebody you work with. Maybe it's a past relationship. Maybe the first thing you just need to do to get on that track is just to stop hating And see them how God sees them. So I'm going to pray. And then we're also going to have communion here. Because the the culmination of what we do in worship is we focus on the cross. Why do we do this? We don't just do this for tradition, friends. We do this because this is transformative, transformational, and life-changing. Because what Jesus did rewrote all the rules. And that's why we praise him. But as you partake today, I want you to think. Because we remember Jesus. But remember, you were his enemy. You were his enemy and he died for you. It's the most beautiful story in the history of the world. It becomes even more beautiful when it's portrayed in your life. Let me pray and we're going to have communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, we'll invite you to partake. If you, if you don't want to, that's fine. But we're just going to use the time to remember the cross. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the patience of my sisters and brothers here this morning because that's a crazy ride we went upon. I think it's important for us to understand, Father, and I think you put this stuff in the scriptures for a reason. Hating is so easy, and sometimes it's even so justified, but God, 
you are not the God of hate. You are the God of love. And the ultimate expression of your love to us was sending your son to this earth to live among us and to die brutally for us so that we might live with you for eternity. Your message is one of love and you love us and you want us to spend eternity with you, Father. There's no greater story. I would just pray for each one of us this week because this has probably been our, in our minds as I've been talking or thinking about our enemies, our nemeses, and Father, I, we just don't even want to deal with them. Help us to forgive. Help us to show love to those who have wronged us not even because they deserve it, but because we do not deserve it ourselves, and yet you show it to us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thanks for sending your son Jesus to change our eternity. We remember him now as we partake in Jesus' name. Amen.